This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Digital technology has changed the power of traditional creative industries. In this era of YouTube and social media outlets, anyone right now can become a content producer. Just think of all the abilities that you have on your smartphones. Authors also can self-publish. Musicians can release their songs on various platforms. Filmmakers and artists can distribute their work without the help of big corporations. Now, while some worry this could result in a tidal wave of low-quality material or bad art, our next guest says that this digital revolution is actually enabling a new golden age of popular culture. The book we speak of is called Digital Renaissance, What Data and Economics Tell Us About the Future of Popular Culture. The book is authored by Joel Waldfogel, who is chair at the University of Minnesota Carlson School of Management. And the book talks about how media, film, and music industries will change and eventually improve for the consumer because of the ease at which the content can be made. And Professor Waldfogel will be joining us coming up in just a second to talk about his book. And he talks a lot in this book about digitization benefiting the entertainment industry and also popular culture, which is an interesting factor when you think of, as we mentioned just a moment ago, the impact that our smartphones have right now in the fact that anyone can make a video and post it to YouTube and then all of a sudden get millions upon millions of hits on that video, on that particular platform. Audio obviously has a little bit of a different quotient to it, but as mentioned in the book, the music industry has the potential to change quite significantly in the fact that musicians have the ability to produce their own uh, produce their own songs and be able to push them to platforms that do not necessarily require them to go through publication houses through production houses it's an amazing shift in the industry right now and it is one that we will uh, speak now with professor waldfogel about joel great to have you with us today Good to be here. Thank you. So uh, you talk uh, quite a bit about digitization. How really has digitization changed both entertainment, the entertainment industry, and popular culture? Well, really massively. I mean, you know, the technological changes began with Napster and piracy, which was, of course, huge bad news originally for music. But then other things came along like streaming, which in some ways seemed like good news, but artists complain about how little they get paid. Maybe the biggest change was just the huge reduction in the cost of producing new stuff, which is, in, in one sense, great news. It means it's easier to make stuff, but it's also bad news for the traditional guardians of culture. Right. You know, the, the labels and the, and the, and the uh, publishing houses and so forth who, who decide what ought to get made and which good stuff should go forward. And, and that becomes, uh, I think, an even bigger issue when you think of something like the music industry where uh, the payment to artists, not only the people singing songs, but... Uh, the ones uh, behind the scenes producing the songs, there's been such a battle back and forth in, in recent years about trying to make sure that those people are paid just like the artists are paid. Yeah, I mean, overall, music industry revenue fell by over half between about 2000 and 2010. And then in addition to that, there are these, these questions about who gets what little payments are, are left. So you might have expected a huge fall off in production. If there's no money available, you might have expected nobody to continue making new stuff. 
But what's amazing is that what happened is kind of the opposite. Because the cost of making stuff fell, we got a huge explosion in the amount of new music, new movies, new television, new books. All these industries had this creative explosion. Yeah, and, and, and you talk about the movie industry specifically, and, and I find it interesting in terms of the numbers of movies that are produced annually has skyrocketed uh, over the last, what, about decade and a half. Uh, and it, it is it, it, partly, I think it's because of the interest of the consumer, but partly it is also because of the uh, the numerous outlets that, that these films can go to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it used to be that the theaters, you know, movies were made to be distributed in theaters. And although there are about 40,000 screens in the U.S., the truth is there's really just room for a few hundred movies per year. But now, of course, people view their movies on their phones, through their televisions. You know, every every screen is a venue. And so there is capacity for the thousands of new movies that are being created, most of which never really get shown in theaters in any appreciable amounts. What do you think is going to be the impact even now, but, but moving forward, for the companies that are behind these, these media outlets? Well, I think there are, you know, there are a couple of different players. Obviously, there are the, the Netflixes of the world who are you know, trying to become the, and I think in many ways succeeding in becoming the distribution channel for all this, much of this new stuff that's not intended for theaters. I mean, the traditional players, the traditional movie studios, I mean, they're going to continue to prosper making many of their traditional kinds of movies, the big budget movies that really kids appreciate in theaters. I think the question is, who is going to step in and make the smaller budget movies? By and large, it's been smaller players, not the traditional players. But I think the question for the traditional guys is, should I jump into that market too? It's, of course, true that it takes a lot of $5 million movies to equal one $300 million movie. But that said, there do seem to be these profitable opportunities in making these mid-level movies. Joel uh, Waldfogel is a chair at the University of Minnesota's Carlson School of Management. He's also author of the book Digital Renaissance, What Data and Economics Tell Us About the Future of Popular Culture. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. So with the changes that, that you just kind of laid out in, in the film industry, how similar is the shift of, of what we've seen in the television industry as well? A lot in common. I mean, just as in, in movies where, you know, theaters used to be the mode of distribution, now, again, every screen is a, is a distribution channel, and we've seen a similar explosion in the number of new programs. I mean, one of the arguments I make, not just about television and not just about movies, but all these different cultural products, is that with this growth in quantity, we've also had a growth in quality. And my argument is, yeah. is, is this. It's not that all the new stuff's good. In fact, most of the new stuff is, is not good. But the nature of this industry is that we don't know which things are going to be good when we go ahead and invest in them. But if we can take a lot of new draws out of the urn, although most of them are going to be bad, a few of them will turn out to be quite good. And if that were true, what you'd see is a lot of the stuff that people are really liking, a lot of the stuff that ends up as bestsellers or most popular is stuff that would never have made it to consumers before. And that's exactly what you're seeing. If, for example, in TV, if you look at the, either the most popular or the most award-winning shows, you know, it used to be that was just dominated by the traditional networks. Right. Of course, the share has just plummeted. Now it's mostly coming from outside the traditional channels. Similarly in movies and astoundingly in books. I mean, the number of self-published books that end up 
I mean, most of them are, are big losers. Yeah. But if you look at bestsellers, a large fraction of them started life as self-published books. How then also, playing off an offshoot of the of the print industry with books, how is this also, is it, is it impacting something like the newspaper industry as well? Well, the newspaper industry has suffered in, in ways quite similarly to the way that uh, the music industry suffered. In fact, their revenue looks just like music industry revenue. It wasn't Napster that, that did them in. It was just the availability of better ways to advertise. So they've suffered pretty enormously. Now, you could argue that, uh, you know, that there has been a growth in smaller scale kinds of news outlets, although there, I think, in contrast to cultural products like books and music and so forth, where there's a variety of things, none of which are false, the challenge, I think, with news is that not all forms of news are, are equally true. So I think the fragmentation there is less like a cultural renaissance and more like a cacophony. You take this even further than, than what we consider to be the, the big traditional kind of media uh, inputs uh, in, in the fact that you also talk in the book about the impact that this is having on things like photography and, and the travel agent industry and, and others as well. I mean, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, a lot of these industries have this flavor that it's become much cheaper to accomplish what we used to accomplish in sort of expensively. Yeah. And what's interesting is that a lot of the, the practitioners will look at the new developments and say, my goodness, that's not photography. You know, if somebody can just take a bunch of pictures and accidentally make some good ones, that's not really photography. And I get it. I mean, there's a loss of craft. But at the same time, from the standpoint of the users of the product, there's more product available at lower prices than before. So it's really a bonanza for the consumers in these industries. We're talking with uh, Joel Waldfogel of the University of Minnesota. His new book, Digital Renaissance, What Data and Economics Tell Us About the Future of Popular Culture. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. You do mention uh, Kodak in here, and, and I'd be interested to get your thoughts on Kodak, which obviously was a, a legacy company going back 40, 50, 60 years ago. But it was one of the companies that didn't make the transition well enough to be able to survive in terms of what it was or or potentially what it could have been in a, in a digital culture. Yeah, that's true. I'm not an expert on Kodak, but I mean, it is very challenging when you make a lot of money doing things the old way to transition to the new way. I mean, that said, Kodak did invent a lot of the technologies that brought us digital photography. It was just it was super painful for them to transition to that since it would hasten the demise of film. What's been the reaction to to a lot of the traditional industries to all of these shifts? Like, let's say the music industry, when you have the ability to have uh, people produce their own records and, and put them on, put them out on different platforms, they're profitable. They're companies that are still very profitable, but they are losing a little bit of something at the same time as well. Well, I think the traditional players, the major record labels, what they have done is they've really reduced their artist rosters, and they're, they're focusing on more predictably successful artists. So, you know, they're very good at promoting and distributing a Taylor Swift or something like that. What they're, what they're less interested in doing these days is investing in, in the risky new artists. So I think what's happening is you're seeing the risky new artists develop themselves through indies or through self-release. Mm. And once it becomes clear that there's a market for them, it makes sense for them to transition over to those traditional majors who are much better at, at marketing and distributing and promoting stuff that would have very broad appeal. So then do you think we're looking at, at, at some sort of 
uh, of sizable revamp of, of the entertainment industry coming uh, in the future, maybe even to a degree happening right now? Well, certainly if you look at, at products, like the number of products coming from traditional players versus new players, the revamp has already occurred. I mean, that said, the traditional guys would say, well, we're still a very large share of sales and revenue, and that's, that's true. But take, you know, indie music, it used to be less than 10%. Now it's probably more like 20%. In movies, it's really hard to say because the only revenue we get to systematically observe is box office. And the non-traditional stuff is mostly being distributed through uh, digital channels where we don't get to see the revenue. But I think in many ways, according to products as opposed to revenue, the revamp has already occurred. And we're talking about a kind of an undeniable blip. It's not, you know, not a handful of percent. It's, it's a bunch of percent. As I say, in books, more than 10% of the best-selling books are books that started life self-published. Yeah. And in movies, again, we don't exactly know, but it's a large and growing share, similar for music. And, and Fifty Shades of Grey was one of them. In fact, it, it's, it's, it's one of the best ones, correct? Well, I mean, certainly from the standpoint of what people like, you know, if you take, so as an economist, I'm not really qualified to comment on aesthetics. Right. But I do talk a lot about quality in the book. And by quality, I, I tend to mean things that people like. Fifty Shades of Grey is an example of a product that really didn't meet scrutiny with traditional publishers originally. It was self-published, became enormously successful, and then the traditional publishers latched onto things like that and republished them as traditionally published books. But it's you know an example of a genre that was really not understood to be a viable genre. Eight four four. It showed itself to be. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, finish up. Yeah. No, no. That, I mean, okay. before it just, I mean, it's just the, the the runway success of these things has has made has created categories that didn't really exist before. Eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at bizradio one thirty two or my Twitter account, which is at dan loney twenty one. Joel Waldfogel of the University of Minnesota and author of the book Digital Renaissance: What Data and Economics Tell Us About the Future of Popular Culture. Eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter. At at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Uh, you mentioned quality uh, a little bit ago, and I think it's an important component. When you think about all of the different content that is out there right now, the, the quality of it is as good as ever and continues to, uh, to, to succeed to be just fantastic for a lot of people out there. It does. I mean, again, I think when you look at the enormous pile of self-published books and the enormous pile of new movies and new television programs and pick one at random, it's probably terrible. But what matters for the rest of us, for all of us really, is, is the good stuff good. And what's interesting is that the, the, the good stuff, that is the stuff that people like best among the giant amount of new stuff, tends to stack up very well compared to the traditional things. And that, that's the sense in which consumers are living through this, this kind of uh, digital renaissance. One of my favorite pieces of evidence about this, about quality, it has to do with uh, consumption choices. So in music, it's actually possible to see not just how much people are buying, but how much people are buying of music that was originally released at different points in time. Right. Now, right. music revenue collapsed after Napster, and it really is in some sense still in collapse. So if you thought that the evaporation of revenue would mean the evaporation of good new stuff, You'd expect new stuff in music, meaning stuff since 1999, to be bad. But what you see is that usage of the stuff released since 99 is actually pretty high, conditional on how old it is. It gets used a lot, which suggests, or maybe even indicates, 
that the, the service flow delivered by new music, even after the revenue collapse or especially after it, is really quite high compared to historical standards. And, and it, it obviously with so many different, or I should say so many more outlets that we have today, the, the want to use music not only in just the format that it is traditionally known, but in other venues as well has skyrocketed also. And that again provides, you know, an opportunity for the consumer to be able to, 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 uh, to be able to see the taste or feel the taste of, of music in a variety of different forms. And, you know, one version of this, and it's, it's true, especially for music, but also for video is the bundled sales model. You know, the Netflix sales model, the Spotify sales model, in the old days, if you liked the song, you had to like it enough to pay, let's say, 99 cents to buy it. And I guess by old days, I mean between 2003 and 2008. Now, with your Spotify subscription, not to plug Spotify, but, you know, yeah. with one of these subscriptions, once you are using the product, you can go ahead and listen to a song. Now, what's interesting is you don't have to like that song enough to pay a dollar for it, to listen to it, which also means... You know, both means you get access to it as a consumer, but it also means that the owner of that song, the label and the artist, are getting paid something when people use old stuff that they wouldn't even otherwise have purchased. Are, are we at a point right now where, and I, I'll take the example of, uh, of, the, of the TV industry for a second. Uh, if you go back maybe 10 or 15 years, a lot of people talked about the fact that, you know, we have so many TV channels. You know, we're just inundated with TV channels. And a lot of people were looking to pare down the, the, the size of the package they would get from a Comcast or, you know, a, another a video provider. But now we have things like Hulu and Netflix. And, and I wonder if, if with all of those different streaming services, have we kind of hit a, a tipping point in terms of having enough of those? Or will we? do you think we'll continue to see growth of these types of companies moving forward? Well, I think we're right now we're in this period in which a bunch of platforms are fighting to be the dominant platform and the winning platform. In the last couple of years, Netflix and Amazon collectively have spent tens of billions of dollars buying programming, most of it serial television programming or creating it and buying it and others are jumping in disney's jumping in i think a lot of these content producers are afraid of a world in which let's say a netflix becomes the bottleneck that they all have to go through so a lot of different players are jumping in trying to to become the either the dominant platform or one of the surviving platforms now it may well be that we're currently in a period where there's overproduction of programming, you know, maybe more than what's really sustainable. Right. But I think right now we can sit back and, and enjoy the show. It's going to be a while before uh, everybody gives up. All the deep-pocketed players give up and say, you know, I'm not going to produce any more programming. Great having you with us today on the show, Joel. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Joel Waldfogel. The book is Digital Renaissance, What Data and Economics Tells Us About the Future of Popular Culture. Uh, the book is uh, out in bookstores and online now for your purchase. Uh, it's a really interesting look about uh, about how this uh, this change has occurred over the last uh, decade or two. Many thanks to Joel for uh, joining us here on the show. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 